2273 of Breaking KK with Boudrin and Barry. Barry, it is 2023. What does the future hold? Only the shadow knows. Barry Rose. How exciting, Jeff. And I, uh, Christmas is over you're, you're, now. You're ringing uh, pots and pans in the background. <laughs> <laughs> so let me, I'll, I'll tell you, and you being a dog owner and lover, uh, you'll As get my it. dog chews a bone in the background. <laughs> so, so whenever I'm eating, Ozzy will just come and stare at me and I feed him while I'm eating. But at the same time, I always leave shit on the plate so he can get to it. And there's a collection of plates next to the couch where I'm currently at. And Ozzy is just stepping all over those. But Jeff, we're, we, we just had Christmas a couple of days ago. How was your Christmas? I can't believe what I got. It was just, uh, amazing. Wow. And, uh, should we touch on this next week? Cause I know we got a full show this week. It, it, Barry, please don't touch me. Uh, not, it would be inappropriate. Huh. I have to say that, you know, uh, but I will say on this particular episode of Breaking Kayfabe with Bowden and Barry, uh, here's what we have for you. The beloved listener. So first of all, we're going to go to the Sam Houston Coliseum. We're going January 31st, 1986. Our old friend Steve Kern in a villainous role taking on the pride of Mexico, even though I think he was from El Paso. Chavo Guerrero Sr. What makes this special? The loser of the match gets painted yellow. Yes, the yellow stripe. Down the back, well, maybe in this case, it's a little more than just one stripe painted down the back. Uh, it's a fun gimmick match. Barry and I will be discussing that. Besides that, because Barry is nothing if not Mr. 1980s, we all know that, we are going to be offering up to you, the listener, 1980s songs that you forgot were awesome. Now, let me just clarify. This does not mean that Barry and I came up with this list. No, of course. This is a list I found somewhere out there in your uh, various and sundry Google worlds and stuff like that. And someone's come up with a list. As a matter of fact, I think in this case it was Watch Mojo, if I'm not mistaken. And they have, you know, very subjectively come up with these songs, some that were humongous hits, some that were like maybe one hit wonders, some that were a little more obscure. And of course, by obscure, I mean, Barry Rose likes the group, uh, that kind of stuff. So we're going to be offering <laughs> up, yeah, of course, 1980 songs that you forgot were awesome. And besides that, oh, Barry, of course, we at this point, can we do an episode without having some freaking Florida man or not? What do you say? I think I think it's Florida man 24 seven at this point, Jeff. You know, based on my uh, my mail feed, right. uh, it seems that way because I get a lot of uh, potential stories that uh, people send me. I'm always happy to review them for potential use here on our Peabody and Sherman Award winning podcast. On that, that note, note, Barry Rose, Jeff. Yes. I, on that note, let me tell you, I was talking with our old friend Amish Bobby Van Cavalar this week, and he was telling me about a day at work where I guess it was a heavy load that he had to do. And uh, I hate dealing with a heavy load. Usually I have to release it. So, yeah, uh, well, and that, that was in our younger days. But Bobby, yes. I think, binged uh, like five or six episodes of, of the podcast. And his takeaway was, I love when you all do that Florida man shit. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> well, thank you, Bobby, for being a, a listener and a binge watcher, binge listening to five straight episodes. Yeah, uh, that entitles you to a grand total of uh, nothing, though. So, on that note, Bobby Van Kevlar and the rest of the listeners are waiting for our match of the week. Loser gets painted yellow. Barry Rose, let's go to our match of the week. Barry, it's time to talk about our match of the week. But before we do that, of course, last week we did a, uh, a special segment called Rapid Fire. 
and our own Lou Kippelman joining us for the rapid fire segment. And we were discussing contracts for shortstops. And oh, Lewis, there was a bit of a kerfluffle with that San Francisco Giants Carlos Correa contract. Please, sweet Lou, join us. Oh, I am here. So I awoken this morning to find that the long-term contract that the Giants were going to sign, I believe it was 12 years, $350 million with Carlos Correa, somehow, some way, it went off the rails, and Carlos Correa signed a contract of approximately, I want to say, Mm, 11 years, 315. It was at less, like about 35 million less than what the Giants were offering. What was your, as a Giants fan, your initial reaction to that? Right. Looking at ESPN here, it says 12 years. So you're right on them on the three. Okay. So it was 12 years. Okay. 12 years, 315. Ah, yeah. Uh, so reportedly the guy had some sort of problem with his physical. I don't know if he actually failed it or if some kind of red flag came up, but it must right. have been a pretty good red flag because it was a red flag that was worth $35 million. Yeah, I know. The the news about the, the holdup with the physical came out as we're recording here uh, yesterday. And so... Things just went sideways in a goddamn hurry. So I am, uh, I am like probably m- most Giants fans out there and probably a few Mets fans are kind of stupefied. So is it a case uh, of I'm really pissed off? I'm really disappointed or, oh my God, we dodged a bullet with this guy. Oof. Well, I mean, when the original news came out that uh, they had come to an agreement, the Giants and Correa, uh, it seemed like at least the treatment in the sports media here was, all right, the Giants landed a big player. It wasn't Aaron Judge, but, yeah, this is somebody, a 28-year-old uh, phenom, who can be a cornerstone in the infield for the sort of the next generation of Giants teams. And now it's, yeah, it is vaporized. So, so, so one of the things that I heard was, of course, uh, Correa ends up signing the contract. I didn't mention it with the Mets. So now the Mets have just shelled out a ton of money. I think they're, what do you call, uh, uh, their contracts that they have that they total somewhere in the neighborhood of $800 million for all the players on the team, which, uh, and apparently, what is it? The the fee they're going to pay for going, you know, like uh, to a Over certain the salary cap. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so uh, it, apparently the fee they're going to pay just for going over is more than some people's actual budgets. I'm sure they're talking, you know, like your Kansas City Royals, your Oakland A's, those kind of things. So uh, uneven market here, Lou. Uh, what's the solution? What do you think? Oh, boy. <laughs> Uh, have we have we got about four hours for you to come up with the answer for that one? Yeah, I know. We might might have to wait till uh, the, the Patreon. Yeah, I'll be interested to read on what happened, why what was such a supposedly a solid deal got tanked, and how Farhan Zaidi the. Uh, the Giants GM, well, not the GM, but I think president of baseball operations or some such decided to balk on this. There were, there were other 
pre-agent signings, but none even even remotely close uh, in terms of impact. So now we're looking at, oh. Uh, well, you're looking at an offseason from the Giants' point of view where you wanted Judge, whiffed on that one. You wanted, uh, you fell back, your fallback plan was Correa, had this big money offer on the table. He was ready to put pen to paper, but you got to pass the physical. And now that's at the window. So now you're 0 for 2 in the offseason, plus you've lost uh, Carlos Rodon. So yeah. uh, I'd have to fairly say it's been a, a disappointing offseason for the Giants. Fair to say? To be charitable? Yes. <laughs> We're nothing if not charitable here on the uh, old Breaking Cape Bay with Bowdrin Barry. Thank you, Lou, for your thoughts on that. And now, this is a season Barry, for charity. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> now, Barry, we can go to our match of the week. Barry, our match of the week, we're going to January, th- I believe it's 31st, 1986, the venerable Sam Houston Coliseum, a uh, little Mid-South wrestling. As it is, you know, I, I think this feud, if I'm correct, Barry, was sort of a Houston-centric feud as it's Steve Kern, one half of the fabulous ones, taking on Chavo Guerrero. And it's a loser-gets-painted-yellow match, Barry. Uh, kind of a fun gimmick match. I don't know in all our 6,432 episodes if we've ever done a loser-gets-painted-yellow match, Bear. I don't think we ever did, and I was trying to remember the context of what this match was. And if I recall correctly, weren't the Guerrero's heels in mid South and the fabulous ones, baby faces. And then when they got to Houston, because Chavo was so popular in Houston, that, that the fabs had to kind of flip and become the heels. And then Chavo was the baby face. And you can kind of, that's what I, that's what I thought the scenario was. You can see it in the beginning of the match, because even when they're doing the ring introductions, when they announce Steve Kern, he puts his hand up in the air. He, you know what I mean? It's kind of this, the beginning of the match, there's this subtle heel stuff from Steve. Well, and there's uh, him giving the finger to the fans too. Oh, is that what it, maybe that's what I just saw him raise a finger. So maybe it was a finger. It it was a one fingered salute, if you will. (laughs) Yeah. But he seemed, he seemed like a very subtle type of heel. He certainly got into it, uh, by the end. This is a fun match. Uh, I think one of the highlights of what I really like about this match is there are no commentary. And I always talk about that because I feel that you can get a real and a great commentator could take a horrible match and make it great. For sure, but I also feel like you get a really good handle of what it was like to be in the arena when uh, back in the territory days when there's no commentary. So that was an odd thing with Kern being the heel. Has and I just off the top of my head, I the answer was no. Has Kern ever been a full fledged heel other than maybe what he did in Mid South? Where else was he a heel? I guess Skinner, right? Uh, well. I don't know. It was, uh, I was really never into the whole Skinner gimmick. I don't know if it was sure. presented as a heel or not. So, but let me ask you, it, when you talk about gimmick matches like this, okay. And to me, this is a really fun gimmick, yes. but what are, uh, yeah, we may have asked this before, uh, sometime in the past, but what's your, what's your favorite kind of gimmick match? What did you favor? Ooh, we're talking territory days. Yes. <sighs> Texas death match the way it was supposed to be. Yeah. I was always a fan uh, when uh, when Sullivan was down here as a babyface, and they used to have the Boston Street Fight, kind of the uh, the come as you are, uh, the jeans, the cowboy boots, the belt buckles. I, I was always a big fan of those. 
however, although I don't believe there's any video footage of it, I remember Memphis once did a match and it was involving Bobby Eaton and somebody. I can't remember who it was. Again, we may have discussed this previously where it was loser eats dog food. Oh. And, and I remember what they did was they brought the can of, of food out and at the end, Bobby loses and he goes to eat it. And he puts the spoon in and he's like smelling it and he's making faces because, you know, Bobby was such a friggin' pro. And then he like just takes a very small amount and puts it in his mouth and he's sitting there and, you know, people at ringside are like, Oh my God, he's eating dog food. And Bobby, like all of a sudden the expression on his face changes and it's like, Oh, well, this isn't really that bad. And he starts <laughs> to, and apparently what they had done was they had uh, like switched the label. And he was actually eating, I think, corned beef hash or something like that. Right. Uh, and But he sold it like it was dog food. And it was just absolutely – I would love to see a videotape of that match because just the, the pictures – I remember I saw it in a, uh, a magazine when I was over in Japan. They had uh, this uh, magazine issue for one of the magazines, either, uh, you know, Gong or uh, baseball magazine, Shah, which both covered wrestling. And they had a, uh, a photo – thing for the great gimmick matches from the United States. And that was part of it. And so you could see that it was very funny. So anyway, uh, continue with this match. So one thing I thought was, Jeff, I you know, what, one thing I remember right. too, they, there was a, and I don't want to say it was the same situation. Maybe Bobby was involved also, but there was a match where the loser was supposed to be eating dog food. And much like you said, the loser had been told that they were going to get either hash or whatever it was in a can. And of course it was the old double rib where it was dog food. It actually <laughs> was. This, That's funny. Yeah. Yeah. And as this guy, uh, you know, dug in, he's actually eating dog food. A couple other notes with this too. Tommy Gilbert, the referee, always good to see Tommy Gilbert, you know, whether he's refing, whether he's wrestling eight minute mark. This really caught my eye. Chavo's going for the gory especial, which is essentially uh, and I wonder if you caught that, where it's uh, the, the surfboard hold, where Chavo locks up the legs uh, as he's standing on the back of someone's knees and then grabs their arms and is going to flip them over. Daniel Bryan does this. Brian Danielson does this all the time. However, for whatever reason, Chavo was not able to get Kern up. Kern wasn't going up, and Chavo kind of flipped it over into uh, La Magistral, which is essentially the uh, the Cobra Cudge the Iron Sheik uh, Cobra Clutch. So I thought that was kind of funny. He's trying. He's not able to get him up there. The beginning of this match, which this, and this is something you and I have talked about many times also, the beginning of this match, there's, it moves at a slower pace. There are uh, rest holds that are taking place. And I never liked that when it's a big feud. We've talked about that. If guys are in either a steel cage, and obviously with this match too, it's a loser painted yellow. So there's some heavy stips on this. Guys should come out and just start to beat the crap out of each other and not sit in, you know, either a leg hold or a, an arm lock or something. Yeah, like I don't that. want to see guys locking up collar and elbow. No. Match. Yeah, they're they're trying to kill each other. It shouldn't be. Kern's punches, uh, he doesn't get enough credit. And we saw this a lot in Florida too. He he knew how to throw a punch. It was unlike other punches that were out there. It was kinda unique, but he really knew how to throw a punch and it always looked like it was connecting. Here's another thing, and I don't know if this is a botch and I have to assume it was. Steve looks like he's going for the blade and blading himself three or four times throughout this match. And it's clear 
there's one part where he's doing it. Chavo's even kind of trying to work with him with the, all of this. Uh, Steve does not get busted open. Steve does not bleed, but there are two or three instances easy. I'll, three to four, I'll say, where he is clearly going for the blade, uh, and blading his forehead, but nothing's happening. So I'd be curious to know what happened with that. Then there's another weird suplex and it's like Chavo is going and I want to say it was where he was going to do almost like a, uh, like a Northern light suplex kind of. And, uh, he flips him over, but instead of flipping over, Kern just goes face first right on the, uh, on the mat. So it was kind of a botch, which I think was the second or third botch. The, the ending I loved and I, do you want to talk about the ending, Jeff? Cause I thought well, the I'll ending tell you what, was great. Before we get to the ending, I just had a couple of uh, quick points because the ending is absolutely the highlight of the match. Yeah. Uh, first of all, I thought Chavo looked really kind of old here. You know, yeah, he looked old. He had put on some weight at this point. This was not the Chavo from like the late seventies that was so over in Los Angeles or even the Chavo that was, uh, you know, going to Japan and, and wrestling uh, Tatsumi Fujinami in great matches. He was beginning to show his age here. I'll tell you a funny story uh, about Chavo. I uh, Meltzer told me this story. Uh, he was, uh, I, I don't know if it was at one of the the shows that we went to in Houston where uh maybe it was the Paul Bosch retirement show or maybe it was uh one of the uh the Western States Heritage Championship uh tournament but he ran into Chavo and Chavo apparently was a big fan of the Observer and he was a big fan because Dave always had put him over when he was you know like in the early days of the newsletter and said that you know Chavo was very underrated and should be getting a bigger push because back then Chavo was still really a you know a great worker and could do a lot of stuff and you know let's be honest there's you know sort of a uh, a ceiling there on that career uh, unless you're in a place like Houston uh, that has a large Latino population where he can really get over or a place like Los Angeles. Uh, but so anyway, so Chavo sees Dave, uh, and he apparently says to Dave, I, you know, Hey man, I love this guy because this guy, he would make me the world champion. And Chavo turns and walks away and Dave turns and looks at me and he goes, I, I wouldn't make him the world champion. Even I wouldn't do that, which I thought was kind of funny because, huh. you know, even Dave knew, uh, Chavo's, uh, let me just say limitation. Uh, so, you know, you mentioned the, uh, the gory, uh, the gory special. Uh, it's funny how people remember things differently. To me, the gory special, the surfboard that, uh, you know, that Daniel Bryan or Brian Danielson uses, uh, because the first time I saw it mentioned in a magazine was in one of the after magazines and it was done by Raymond Doza. Sure. Uh, out in California. I'm sure that's somebody like guys like Vandal Drummond and, uh, Gabe Daigle will remember, uh, when Raymond Doza was out there and he would do the Raymond Doza surfboard. So it's just funny how, you know, well, Mosterus did it too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just yeah, depending yeah. on where you are and where you first saw it, that's always the kind of thing that stays with you. So let's talk about the finish of this match, which is absolutely the whole highlight and the reason, quite frankly, when I watched this match that I, I said, oh, I got to send this to Barry because this is going to be a lot of fun to discuss. So Chavo gets the win, okay? And then he goes over and he goes out, gets the can of paint that he had brought to the ring with him. But what, here's the funny thing is, the gimmick is you've won the match and now you get to paint your opponent yellow, right? So Chavo kneels down in the ring, turns his back on Steve Kern, who's starting to get up, and he begins stirring the paint because, you know, 
God forbid <laughs> you should get sent out paint on your opponent. Oh, oh yeah. my God, Barry. Boy, did I oh, pop yeah. that. That is funny too. And that, that's the beauty of wrestling though, is that, and we, I, I know we've discussed this. This reminded me of the press conference with Eddie Gilbert and Terry Taylor. And Taylor goes to attack Chris Adams. He grabs an ashtray. It's full. So what does he do? He's considerate. He empties it out before of he course, hits him yes. over the head with it. Gotta love it. So, so yeah, so Chavo is stirring the paint. Okay, so that it's, uh, you know, like nice, uh, got a nice balance to it. It's going to show nice, I guess. And then Stan Lane comes in, does the run in, gets involved. There's a schmoz. And then Barry, take it from there with what happens. So there's a big schmoz. Uh, Stan Lane comes off the top rope, but Chavo's waiting for him. And then, of course, they get the upper hand. The Fabs do, and they start to paint Chavo. Now, this is a great paint for whatever reason, because in this space of about, I don't know, 15 seconds, Chavo looks like he's completely head-to-toe been covered in yellow paint. My favorite part, Chavo then gets up, grabs the paint bucket, and flings the paint at the Fabs. There is no way in hell if you weren't sitting in the first three rows in the Houston Coliseum that night, the Sam Houston Coliseum, that you didn't get paint on you. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. It It went went everywhere. everywhere. That's that's part of what made this so much fun. And then the other thing I was thinking was, wow, if this wasn't the main event, who's going in next? (laughs) Yeah. Like like (laughs) if, uh, you know, it's DiBiase versus somebody, and they've got a mat that's covered in paint, you know, good luck with that. So this was a really fun match. The ending uh, you know, like quite candidly is better than anything else in the match. I mean, the beginning of the matches kind of is what it is. Uh, we haven't done a lot of uh, stuff with Chavo Guerrero and, uh, you know, but, uh, this is a, a fun match. The ending with all the paint getting involved, Chavo. And, you know, you, you wonder almost, Barry, I hate to say this, uh, knowing Steve as one of the great rivers in the history of business, the amount of paint that is put on Chavo, you wonder if that was a rib. What do you think? Absolutely right. It's, I, I think these guys, given the opportunity to rib during an angle when some, they're expecting one thing and they get another, they absolutely were doing it. Yeah, this, this was, go ahead. Yeah, this, this wasn't, this wasn't the, the half-assed, like when the loser loses his hair and they yeah. cut off four curls. No, Chavo is fucking covered in yeah, yellow. This, paint. this was not one stroke of the brush across the yes. back. This is like, let's dump the whole can of fucking paint on Chavo. Yep. And, uh, it was pretty hilarious. We'll post a link to this match in our uh, Facebook group, Breaking Gay Paper About It and Barry. Uh, this is, uh, it's maybe 15 minutes, if that. And it's uh, a fun 15 minutes. Watch for the ending. Watch Chavo get covered with the paint and then, Chavo picking up the bucket and spraying, I think you can pretty much safely say, as Barry mentioned, uh, the first couple of rows at the Sam Houston Coliseum in Houston, Texas. Barry, it's always nice to do a top 10, top 20 list, and especially nice when we can go back to music. And when, especially when you're talking about music from the 1980s, I know that's right in your wheelhouse. Barry Rose, I present to you top 20 songs from the 1980s that you forgot were awesome. Oh, are you ready to go? This sounds exciting, Jeff. I don't know. And I will say that there are songs on here. I'm not going to not going to spoil it that Barry Rose is going to absolutely pop for because I know the kind of stuff he listens to. As I've said on more than one occasion, I can listen to uh, Metallica and ACDC and then turn around and listen to friggin' Top 40 radio. So my my uh, musical tastes are wide and varied. We're going to start off at number 20. This is one I'm going to guess is in Mr. Rose's wheelhouse at number 20. And by the way, 
Let me just say once again, this is not our list. This is a list that Watch Mojo compiled. And I have to say, right from the get-go, right from the start, there's no rhyme or reason to this list whatsoever. Because, you know, it, the, there are one-hit wonders in here. There are songs by established groups that were very popular. Uh, there are songs from groups that were popular uh, in the United Kingdom, songs that were popular in the United States. So don't try to understand the list here. Just sit back and enjoy uh, as his lordship and myself talk a little 1980s music. Number 20, Barry. Performed at Live Aid by Ultravox, it's Vienna. Vienna is a great fucking song. And uh, Ultravox is, which is interesting because I think the lead singer and I guess creator of Ultravox, his name is Midge Ewer. I believe he was part of Live Aid as far as the planning stages. He was the guy along with Bob Geldof of Yeah, Bob Geldof of Boomtown Rats. Yeah. Yeah, and they, they brought We Are the World together. They were the two behind the scenes that were doing that. So anyways, he's the lead singer. He is, he still tours. He was in Philly shit three years ago and was playing a place that only had like 60 to 75 seats. Uh, and I was really tempted to go. I didn't Vienna. If you've ever heard it, a beautiful song, it's, it falls into the new wave, you know, whatever genre you want to put it into, but a beautiful song. I think it's their best song by far. And I should say this was a, this is a favorite of, of young Zachary Rose as well. This song you familiar with it, Jeff? Uh, I've heard it. Uh, I'm not super familiar with it, but I have heard the song before. Yeah. So a couple of notes on the song. Uh, the single spent four consecutive weeks at number two on the UK singles charts without ever wow. reaching the top. It was uh, kept off the top spot by John Lennon's woman, which is a, a great song, by the way, it was my, uh, <laughs> wedding song at my first wedding. Uh, let's see here. Uh, oh, and then this is one Barry, the other one that kept it off the top of the charts. I know you're a big fan of <clears throat> Joe Dolce's shut up a you face. <laughs> How'd you know? What, what a musical <laughs> bit of genius. Joe Dolce. Hey, you shut, shut up, up on your face. Oh, man. Oh, good Lord. What Remember, a horrible when song. When we were that was. kids growing up, there were, there were dozens of these types of records. There was a fad in the seventies and I guess going into the eighties. And it was like, there was Kung Fu fighting by Carl Douglas, yeah. but then you had like Rick D's disco duck. Weird Al Yankovic. Oh, I mean, he's still, I think he's still producing this shit. Yeah. But this one, th- this was at a new level for horrible, I think. Shut up, you face. I never would have thought that. Not, not at all, yeah. uh, any kind of, uh, uh, anti-Italian sentiment in that. I mean, good lord. Uh, uh, some other things, uh, the song, uh, let's see here, it was certified gold by the British phonographic industry, denoting sales in excess of 500,000 copies. And in 1981, it won Single of the Year at the Brit Awards. <clears throat> Number 19, Barry. Now, here is a song. You know, if you come up with, like, your uh, your own personal top ten songs, like, you know, they have people say, oh, if you're ever on a desert island, what, what what's a couple oh, yeah. songs that you'd like to have with you? This is one that is definitely uh, a candidate for my top ten. From Crowded House, it's Don't Dream It's Over. Beautiful song. Fan- oh, my God. It's fucking incredible. It's a beautiful – and it's one that you hear. And these guys were really good. These were the Finn brothers, and uh, they were in a band – New Zealand, right? Split Ends was their other band. Very good. Split Ends, and their their big song was I Got You 
uh, and I won't sing because I want to. I don't want to get all that hate. Uh, as I'm getting hate for my controversial comments of the last episode, but split ends were great. Crowded house is great, and I want to say, didn't he? One of the Finn brothers, didn't they fill in for Lindsey Buckingham and Fleet? Yeah, I think Mac? they. Uh, they they've. Uh... He's actually Neil Finn has actually toured with Fleetwood Mac. Yeah, that's it. There's that's it. there's it's out there on YouTube where Fleetwood Mac will stop their show and let Neil have his moment in the sun and sing this song. And it's just an absolutely oh my god, it's such a beautiful song, such a beautiful message, you know, that that and the lyrics are so incredible. It got to number two on the Hot One Hundred, was also featured in the nineteen ninety four adaption uh for television of The Stand, the original version of that oh, yeah. uh, TV show. Yeah. yeah. So uh next uh Barry at number eighteen by the group Real Life, it's Send Me an Angel. Send me an angel. Thank you. Ooh. Uh I love this song and uh this is real life. I don't think they had too many other hits. But this was one of those songs that got a lot of airplay, still a decent song. I want to say Stranger Things used this in one of the uh, – maybe their first or second season. I, I know that I had heard this somewhere else. Great song, though, if you tune into Sirius Channel 33 – 33. 33. Uh, I'm doing a little Elmer Fudd today. You will hear this song because the DJ Richard Blade loves it, can constantly plays it. So, yeah, fantastic song, though. <clears throat> a couple things. Uh, the uh, right. article says that uh, the song was uh, called, quote, enjoyably repetitive. Uh, uh, maybe they say the, the phrase, send me an angel more than once in the song. But I'm just gonna yeah, that. Well, what's interesting is it came out in 1983. It got to number 29 on the top 100. Then it was re-released in 1989, and it made it up to number 26. Wow. So actually, same group, same song, and it came out twice, and it jumped uh, the previous uh, ranking. So number 17, oh, Barry, I've talked about this group before. I like to call them a bar band that made it really big from the uh, the album Sports. It's Huey Lewis in the News, If This Is It. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's one I – that's I I don't know. Is that an obscure? I forgot. No, no, it that didn't was... say obscure. What is it? There, there, it's songs that you forgot were awesome. Why did there, there are songs on here that, quite frankly, I think made it to number one or two. So it's not like this is songs that only got to number thirty nine. Were robbed, you know. But right. uh, so, yeah, they, there are some well known songs on here, but just songs that sort of were forget. You know, because Huey Lewis in the News had so many stinking hits. And maybe this uh, out of their catalog isn't the first one you go to. You know, you you think of I Want a New Drug, The Heart of Rock and Roll, uh, you know, all these other songs. And here this one, which is a, a really good song, a good pop song. Uh, I'm not going to, you know, be uh, putting this up there with, uh, you know, like, quite frankly, I don't think this is as good a song as Don't Dream It's Over, which has a, a great message uh, and great lyrics. This is just a good, uh, as they say, ear candy. What do you think? Yeah, I, 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 it's a great song. Uh, I like it. Yeah, I just, yeah, I, I don't know. It's anything Huey Lewis to me, I don't forget because my God, if you were around to 82 to 85 or 86, it was all Huey Lewis all the time. And do you remember in the original Back to the Future that Huey, uh, Huey Lewis had a cameo? Oh, Huey Lewis played one of the judges. He played he, one of the judges that was the judging Marty. Uh, yeah, Marty yeah, the Fly's the band. Yeah. Boy, so, I've uh, seen that movie, Jeff, because it's always on cable too. I must have seen that yeah. one now two hundred times. Love it though. So, okay, next, Barry, uh, at number sixteen, 
lead singer Amy Mann and Till Tuesday with Voices Carry. Now, I, I'm going to tell you what I, what I remember about this song. Sure. The, so, the song is great. She's got an incredible voice, okay? I yeah. think she's still out there touring as a solo act. She is. But holy crap, this is one of the greatest videos of all time because the guy that plays her boyfriend in the video that, like, kind of mistreats her, it, he could have been a wrestling heel. He was that good, Barry. Yeah, uh, I think, and I want to say he was either really her boyfriend. There was a story to it, and it, it, uh, it, and that's what the entire song's about. But you're right, the video was great, and that was the area when videos were extremely popular. This is, I think, I think this is one of the best songs of the 80s, maybe of all time. And the crime, and I know we've discussed this before, the crime is she never had a huge career though she's got more logical talent in her pinky than most artists have in their entire body. And really what it comes down to is the fact, in my opinion, she was never very attractive. She was, she's not an attractive woman. At least she wasn't back then. And I always felt that, okay, they're only going to push and give the push to somebody who's good looking and, you know, so on. I think things have gotten a little better in that regard, some 35, almost 40 years later, but it was bullshit at the time because the talent that she has, the success of this song, this song is still great. This was 1985, and 37 years later, this song, to me, still fantastic. She should have been an absolute megastar. The uh, the video I referenced, uh, there's a uh, a scene where during a break in the song, a break from the vocals, the guy who's seen sort of chastising her, he goes, oh, what are you doing? Are you going to go out with your friends? Huh? Yeah, so you can make a dick. big success. Yeah, go on. You make me. And the guy is just like verbally berating her. Uh, and then the lyrics kick back in again and the song finishes up. But it's just, oh, my God, it was such a memorable video. Uh, a couple other things. Uh, the song was referred to as quintessential new wave uh, by writer Brett uh, Mann. It reached number eight on the Hot 100. Uh, includes a great line in the song, I'm in the dark, I'd like to read his mind. Uh, yep. Barry's absolutely right. Amy Mann, tremendous talent. Now, we're going to go from a tremendous talent to, we'll be honest, uh, I'm not going to say that these people weren't uh, talented because I'm going to give you some of their background. But you want to talk about 1980s pop ear candy, okay? Waiting for a star to fall by Boy Meets Girl, Barry. <laughs> Yeah. I'm sorry. No. I fucking love this song. You know why? Because there's an innocence to this song, right? Like we, we go back to the 80s and we've talked about this. The 80s were really a turning point in so many different levels. You have the 70s. The 80s shit became decadent. Like it was, it was, you know, especially living where we lived in South Florida. My God, the 80s were all about decadence. But this song, there is an innocence, a niceness to it. And I agree with you. Look, I, I hear this song come on. I even pop a little bit. I, I would make it a little bit louder in my car if I heard it. So I love it as well. So a couple things. Uh, Boy Meets Girl was actually uh, Shannon Rubicam and George Merrill, uh, who they, I think oh, okay. they were married for like, like 15 years, something like that. Um, so one died, one died, and they, they... Uh, no, no. Then they got divorced. But uh, damn it! Uh, right. The song got to uh, number five on the Hot 100. Uh, so here's what's interesting: the song before they released it for themselves uh, was offered to Whitney Houston, who turned it down, uh, right. to Belinda Carlisle, who recorded it but decided not to use it on her album. Uh, let's see. But besides just this song, 
they were a well-known uh, writing group that had uh, other pop hits, including for Whitney Houston. Uh, they wrote the songs uh, "How Will I Know" and "I Want to Dance with Somebody." So yeah, they uh, they were doing pretty good during the '80s there, Bear. Yeah, that's what it sounds like, huh? Yeah. So now at number 14, we're going to get back to the Barry Rose portion of our uh, segment here. At number 14, Barry, oh, it's Echo and the Bunnymen with The Killing Moon. So I believe, and I think you've told me this, this is your favorite Echo and the Bunnymen song. It might be their, it's their Stairway to Heaven, their Hotel California. It's their epic, quote unquote, epic masterpiece. There's a lot of songs that I like better by them, but there's no denying this is a great song. Love Echo and the Bunnymen. Saw them in concert years ago with Zach. They still tour. Lead singer is kind of a douche, but uh, I still love the band. So, uh, Snap, apparently not happy with your thoughts on that. I'm sorry, Snap. I, I will say that uh, the article uh, that I referenced on this uh, referred to it as the intersection of new wave and gothic rock. Uh, the song was also featured in the movies Donnie Darko and Gross Point Blank. Uh, it made it to number nine on the UK charts. Uh, but great song, great uh, song uh, as far as setting a mood, you know. Uh, let's see, number 13, Barry, we talked about uh, kind of forgotten female artist. Uh, here was a woman that I, I want to say she had at least three songs that went uh, – very high up on the charts, but the one they referenced here, number uh, 13, is the late Laura Branigan uh, with self-control. Can't, so I, you know, and I, I, I believe she died of breast cancer at a young age, if I'm correct. And Laura Branigan, obviously known for the song uh, Gloria. Yes. Uh, but not really a huge fan. Was also on an episode of Chips once. I remember seeing her on Chips, uh, which she really also uh, did the song "How How Can I or How Will I Live Without You." That was a huge hit too. I, yeah, that is right. So she had three three big yeah. songs. This song uh, peaked at number four on the top one hundred charts. Now here's interesting a uh, little tidbit, Barry. The right. video for this song was directed by William Friedkin. No. Yeah, that's pretty good stuff, huh? William Friedkin, the director of the fucking Exorcist and uh, the French Connection, uh, yeah, had, had didn't a he also a, do Fifty Two Pickup? Uh, I believe he might have. Yeah, I, uh, didn't he do what was the? Uh, did he do Live and Die in L.A.? I think he did. Yeah. So you've got arguably one of the great directors in Hollywood, and somebody that was really good at uh, doing things that might be controversial, offbeat. I mean, The Exorcist is certainly graphic in a lot of ways. Great crime drama. And then they also directed a Laura Branigan video, which is interesting. That's, that's a different uh, career move right there. Yeah. Uh, number 12, Barry, was there a time during the 1980s where you could get near any radio and not hear freaking Hall and Oates? Uh, the song listed here is Out of Touch, which, little uh, trivia note, was their last song ever to go to number one, Bear. Wow. Uh, yeah, you know, Hall & Oates, the truth is, the, your first statement, 100% correct, Jeff. Even more so than Huey Lewis in the news, I think. I think um, Hall & Oates, you could not, your radio could be turned off, and if you turned it on, Hall & Oates is playing somewhere. It yeah. was, they, these guys were a fucking machine, and they were, it, their drop-off, I guess, was gradual to the point that I didn't even realize that they weren't legends any longer. And it was like around 1990, either 89 or 90, they were playing 
a large outdoor festival in South Florida, but it was like, uh, like Gulfstream racetrack or somewhere. Like it was yeah, somewhere. I, I actually, I saw him at Pompano Beach Amphitheater. Maybe okay, yeah, but at least that you you paid for tickets and yeah, it's that's actually that's a nice amphitheater as well. They they just they somehow drop off and then they they went on tour five years ago and I saw them with Tears for Fears and I got to say after about the third song I was like I'm ready to go if you are Tears for Fears <laughs> great Hollow Notes I'm just not a fan I, I guess their early stuff before they sold out and became strictly pop but. Uh, yeah. yeah, I I think for me it was just I mean how many times could you hear Man Eater? You know, it's well like, they, they were the proverbial blue eyed soul. You know, uh, initially, will, uh, yeah. I, yeah, no, that's fair. And, and I will say that uh, Daryl Hall uh, is still out there. He does his own show. I think it's called Live at Daryl's Place or something like that, where he has different groups come in. He's got like this. It's kind of like a barn that he set up into a music studio. Yeah, Daryl's house, right? Yeah. And, uh, yeah. some of the stuff on there, I mean, like he had one show where he had like Sammy Hagar and they had another one where he had like, I want to say like the Temptations or, or somebody like, or the Spinners or something like that. And it's a wide variety, uh, of, uh, of artists. He had like Tommy Shaw from Sticks on there one. And the shows are usually really compelling to, you know, to see different arrangements of songs that you, you know, that are very familiar to you. Number 11. Oh, Barry, speaking of people that you couldn't get away from, uh, in the music industry in the eighties or in the world of professional wrestling for a time period, it's Cindy, L- as she says, not Cindy Lauper, it's Cindy Lauper. Uh, and the song mentioned here. Now, here's what's surprising. The song they mentioned here, number 12, uh, was All Through the Night, okay, which is a good song. Yeah. I really thought they were going to go with, like, uh, True Colors or they would have got, uh, what, what's the one, uh, you know, where she's leaving her boyfriend, she's getting out of the trailer, that's the video. Um uh, it was like her big uh, follow up to girls just want to have fun. And it was like a soft, you know, like a, a like a dance, not a dance song. It was like a, a romantic ballad. Uh, maybe if Lou thinks about it, he'll tell me. So uh, this one was from, of course, as I mentioned, the, uh, the album, She's So Unusual, it reached number five in the top 100. It made, this is a good stat, made Lauper the first female singer to generate four top 10 hits in the Hot 100, time after time. Thank you, Lou. Appreciate that, buddy. Uh, she was the first female singer to generate four top ten hits in the Hot 100 from a debut album, Barry. That's pretty impressive. That's really impressive, too. What was that big song that she had? Because I always – yeah, it was uh, – Time after right. time. It was time after time. That's yeah. right. And in true color, yeah. So she actually had a lot of hits. There was an article that came out, and I always felt Cindy Lauper, and she still does great. There was somebody posted something recently where she's covering uh, the Edit James song at last, and I clicked on it, and I got to say, she really is a fucking talent. But yeah, she's got a tremendous was, voice. There's no question about it. She does, and I think there were might have been a couple of missteps along the way for her. But uh, the talent is there. Seems like a really good human being as well. Uh, there was an article that in Time magazine, and I want to say this was eighty three, maybe eighty four, somewhere right around there. In the article, and I remember reading this, going, "Wow, I wonder." The article basically said. Uh, Madonna and Cindy Lauper, two big stars. Madonna will fade away, but Cindy Lauper is here to stay. And I think no, history, if only, if only. Yeah, exactly. History will tell you. Well, Madonna actually now Madonna's done, but for Madge, years, as they used to call her on MTV. Madge. What a what a I, you've. I'll give you credit. You've disliked her forever, and I tried to tolerate her. But have you seen her lately? 
Yeah, that's uh, some bad plastic surgery. Oh, yeah. but there's something that. also wrong with her. Like, yeah. there's just something. And, and I will say, uh, guilty pleasure. She does some songs that I, I actually really like. Uh, I like the song uh, "Borderline." I like the song uh, "La Isla Bonita." Um, uh, what do they call uh, some stuff from her? Uh, I think it was true. It was the song "True Blue." So there are songs that she did that I like. It's just her, her like uh, never-ending attempt to somehow make herself the focal point, you know, and just like, oh my god, she was just like so annoying and so pretentious, and I really couldn't stand her personally. But I also understand that she had a lot of hit songs that people liked, and and there were some that I liked also. Yeah, I, let's get I back like to Cindy Lauper. <laughs> All right, let's do that. So, uh, yeah, so uh, this one, as I said, got to number five on the Hot 100. So now we're going to get into the top ten. Now we are getting right into Barry Rose's wheelhouse because Barry Rose at number ten. Uh-oh. Oh, it's your boys from Oingo Boingo, Dead what? Man's Party. Wow. So See, now you're, you know, you're like, look, I'm wide awake up. right now. Hold on, everybody. Wide awake over here. Uh, I'm just happy to see them getting any amount of recognition because uh, if you really didn't live in the state of California, really nobody gave a shit, apparently. So uh, happy to see it. Not my favorite, certainly not my least favorite Olenga Boingo song, just played to death, but a great song. Also, Jeff. Uh, used in the Rodney Dangerfield back to back school to school. Film. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, great, so great, good, great movie good also. And as you've discussed here on the show before, uh, Danny Elfman, a, a guy, a very prolific uh, uh, writer and producer in the music industry, always uh, out there kind of doing something. He's had a very good career. I think he uh, – didn't he write a couple like TV or movie theme songs also? Uh, well, he did this little theme song for this cartoon called The Simpsons about 35 years ago. The Simpsons. And we should say Danny gets paid every time it airs. It probably <laughs> airs. So he's, he's getting a check every once in a while. So, so. that show is airing probably 4,000 times a day on there's a, there's a, it's got its own channel on like FX or FX three yeah. or I don't know something. So, uh, yeah, so he's a multi multi-millionaire, I think based out of that. He also, he does a lot of these shows, uh, in Los Angeles, all related and circ and centered around the nightmare before Christmas. And he yeah. does like live concerts and, uh, orchestras and all this shit. I would love to see him. That's, that's a, that's a bucket list item to see him now. So I wonder. Just going to throw this out there. Don't know the answer. Who made more residual money, Danny Elfman for The Simpsons or Paul Anka, who I believe wrote the theme song for The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson? Yeah, that's well, that's a tough they one. They both right made there. some pretty good, pretty good coin. Let's just say that. Yeah, the only thing I would say about the Tonight Show, and, and let me say, it probably bought him several houses, cars, and put kids through college. But the Tonight Show essentially was airing. Once per day, Monday through Friday, or like Monday through Thursday. And then it did wind up in repeat, certain. But when you consider just how prolific the Simpsons are. No, that's that, fair. That's what you'd want to hit your, uh, your train to. My God, could you imagine? And he's yeah. married to Bridget Fonda. Well, there is that. Yeah. So, uh, now at number nine, Barry, uh, one of these song, one of these groups, I'm going to say that in my mind, they were a one hit wonder, but, I know somewhere out there, there'll be somebody listening going, no, man, they had a song that hit number 39 right at me. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, it is the group Big Country with In a Big Country, Barry. 
One of my favorite songs, and when I hear it, especially the beginning with the drums going into the guitars, which sound like, like they're bagpipes, yes. uh, I immediately just start, I get like all energized. I'd say it's in my top 10 favorite songs ever. And it, there's a mix of happiness and sadness to it. That's, I think that's partly why I like, I like the song is that it, it, there's mixed emotions and a lot of it is the song is this upbeat, powerful song by all these Scottish lads. And it's, you know, they're, they're looking at life as young men. And then of course the reality is the lead singer who couldn't get work and wasn't successful any longer wound up killing himself. I think he hung himself in Nashville. Uh, his name was uh, Stuart. Um, can't remember his last name. Is it Adamson? But, yeah. Or Edmondson, something like that. But yeah, uh, but yeah, no, so, I know. We, yeah, so it's sad because, you know, again, you go back to the video and it's, you know, and I realize it's it's probably not legit. It's a bunch of friends and they're riding like ATVs up and down the mountain, right? And well, and here, here's something I made a notation on the video. Like, what the fuck was going on with that? Because you had the, the band <laughs> driving around ATVs, then they get to this cliff and they're like, you know, and it, uh, I mean, it's a beautiful scenery, but they're like kind of looking over and then down at the bottom of the cliff on the beach, there's some friend that's like waving to him. And I'm like, I know there's some sort of hidden meaning to this video, but I'll be, I'll be damned if I knew what the hell it was. So, but a great song, uh, a great, uh, I'm going to say a great one hit wonder band. Uh, yeah. and, uh, you know, it's a shame they didn't, uh, have more stuff to offer because I really, really like that song much like you. Uh, Barry, number eight, we're going back into the Barry Rose wheelhouse. Barry, were you a fan of the group New Order? Absolutely, still in. What song? The Perfect Kiss. It's a, you know a great song, and it's uh, a lot of their stuff. Not to be really, confused with Shania Twain and This Kiss. This Kiss. It's like yeah. the same thing practically. Shania Twain also on a television show now. I believe it's uh, 1883, which is the Yellowstone. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I believe she plays the wife of. Tim McGraw, who I think they may be married in real life as well. I think. I don't know. I don't know enough about it. But, uh, yeah, so I like New Order a lot. New Order was, uh, was really born coming from the band Joy Division. And, uh, when the lead singer of Joy Division offed himself at a very young age, the other guys formed New Order. They've had their issues as well. Uh, they've broken up, splintered off. A lot of infighting, but their music is good. To me, their music kind of defines a lot of the 80s. It's got that synthy, new wave pop sound for a lot, but there's catchy beats with a lot of it as well. I'm a fan, and that, that's a great song. So the song uh, made it to number five on the UK dance charts. Uh, the video, uh, so Barry, we mentioned William Friedkin before. How about this one? The video for this song was directed by a, a guy named Jonathan Demi. Wow. So, yeah. Great Jonathan Demi. That's some yes. pretty high cotton right there, my friend. Yeah. Yeah. So, number seven, Barry, I believe you may have referenced this song earlier. From the group Split Ends, it's I Got You. Oh. Look at you. Look at you. Yep. And we should say Split Ends, spelled E-N-Z, and the N-Z standing for New Zealand is uh, something I, I read in trivia years ago. Great band. They had some other good songs. This was their, this was their big song, but they had some other songs as well. And, uh, they, they were with this 1980. Does that sound right? Um, uh, 
I, I honestly, I don't know the exact time this song came gotcha. out. Gotcha. Yeah, so, yeah, I'm thinking it's right around 1980. Yeah, I'm just happy these guys are still around, whether they're in Fleetwood Mac or, you know, doing their own thing. There's some talent here. Yeah. Uh, the song, which was written by, again, Neil Finn, uh, was voted as the number 11 greatest New Zealand song of all time. All right. What are the top tens? What are the top? Of course, uh, I have that. I have that. uh, (laughs) You have that list. Let me tell you. uh, uh, Interestingly enough, uh, just to see if uh, Harold Strasser is still listening to this uh, particular segment, Cashbox uh, magazine compared it to a song. uh, uh, They said this sounds like a song that could have been done by the Cars. Wake up, Harold. Wake up. What? Yes. So uh, number six, Barry, continuing on our list here. It's by the group. Now, this is one of those groups. I'm sure there's some significance to the name of this group, but uh, again, I'll be I'll be godsmacked if I understand it. The group is called When in Rome, the song The The Promise. Promise. Yeah. So I saw these guys in concert four years ago. So, do you know the story behind the name? I have no idea. Oh, sure. I asked you a question. You don't know. Okay. Oh, I don't. I don't have any idea. But I will tell you. These guys, there were seven or eight bands that night, and I remember discussing this on air, and like Flock of Seagulls was the headliner. Bow Wow Wow was there, Annabella Lewin. So you had some people that actually had some hits. I want candy. I want candy. Uh, Not on the list, by the way. Do You Want to Touch Me was her other song. So yeah, That was Joan Jett. Didn't Joan Jett do That was Joan Jett. So what did she – shit – yeah, you're, you're right though. Do you want to touch me? Was Joan every Jett. once in a while? Every once in a while, she had an uh, Annabella Lewin. Bow Wow Wow had another song. I want candy, and I don't know I, if I don't think of it, it'll come to me. But the kicker was the guys who stole the show that night were these guys. One in Rome, and how did they do that? They only played one fucking song, which was this song, "The Promise," and they did it. They did three different versions of it. And I got to tell you, it was, it it was the weirdest thing by all accounts that should have failed miserably. But I got to tell you, they played three different versions. I think the crowd was more into this and on a personal level, because I haven't done the weepy dad stuff a lot. Oh, here we go. Zach and I uh, were really right up along the stage and we sang every word to the song three, three different ways. And we had our arms wrapped around each other as we were singing it. And I just, you know, was one. And then he went off to college like two weeks later. So it was a, uh, it was a moment that I'll never forget, but I love this song. I, to me, this is just a great song. And this song was made popular too a second time. I think it Napoleon was Napoleon Dynamite. Dynamite. Yeah, yeah. There you go. So, uh, I will offer a slightly different, uh, story, uh, in relation to this song. So, of course, the opening line to the song, uh, says, uh, if you need a friend, don't look to a stranger, right? Yes. And what that reminded me of was, uh, when, uh, I, uh, had separated, not quite divorced from the first Mrs. Bowdrin, she who shall not be named. I recall, uh, at a time we had been, I want to say it had been like, like six months, something like that. And she was frustrated because she hadn't been dating anything. I hadn't been dating, you know, uh, either. And so, uh, I basically tried to, uh, to throw, uh, the old, well, you know, uh, at least with me, you, you know me. <laughs> 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 tried, tried to worm my way back into her bed and, sure. uh, I was shut down, of course, naturally. So, uh, 
But uh, anyway, and for more uh, more about that relationship, you can go to our Patreon episode. I don't know what, but it's discussed in graphic detail the uh, the time with uh, the first Mrs. Baldwin. Oh, big fun. I don't oh, mind yeah. telling you. So now here at number five, Barry, is a song that, I, quite honestly, I'm going to say a year ago, I would have never, ever heard of this song until the TV show Stranger Things featured Kate Bush singing Running Up That Hill, Barry. So I hated this song. I uh, really in the show or just when it came out. Well, I uh, when the song first came out, and it's been released a couple of times, but I uh, I was not a Kate Bush fan, and you don't like Bush. Is that what you're saying? You know what? I can go either way, but I was not a fan of this song. A lot of it had to well with with the Bush. Okay, and thank you for clarifying. I I just wanted to clarify that for you. Thank you. Do appreciate that. I know, and. I just something about her voice, but apparently, uh, other than Zach, because Zach and I would sit there and go, "God, I hate this song." She also, I, I guess, we weren't the only ones. In 1983, she was invited to be a part of the Three Day Us Festival in California. She was going to be singing on the New Wave Day, and uh, as it turns out, I, either Wozniak or Jobs. I don't, you know, I, I think well, I don't know if Jobs did, but Wozniak helped put this whole Us Festival together. And actually disinvited her because he wasn't a fan and didn't like the song. And that's all that people knew. With that, every time I've stated that I don't like this song, people reach out to me, strangers, and will say, wow, I've never met anyone who doesn't like Kate Bush. And they're serious. So I'm not a fan. I don't love the song. I like it a little bit more in the context of using it with stranger things. But I don't know. Just uh, for whatever reason, I never connected with it. So the other uh, thing about Kate Bush, I want to say, I don't know if you knew this. She was featured on Peter Gabriel's album. So I believe she was the uh, she sang a duet with him on the song. uh, Don't give up. Don't give up. And she's actually she does sound good on that song. Yeah. Uh, I think it's just sometimes her music. It's not anything else, but it's just her music. I want to (sighs) say. She did a duet with somebody else other than Peter Gabriel. I knew that that's a big deal right there. She might have done something with Phil Collins at one point, too. Yeah. So number four, again, Barry Rose, if he had been asleep, will wake up for this one. Oh, yeah. Barry, I give you a song that peaked at number 12 in the UK and at number three here in the US. Oh, it's your boys from Tears for Fears, Barry, Head what? Over Heels. Oh, so Head Over Heels, my favorite Tears for Fears song. And it's head over heels and everybody wants to rule the world with sowing the seeds of love. I like there's not a there's I, other than shout, which I don't love. Let it all out, Barry. Yeah, I'm just I, did kinda, I did. I do. It's uh, I'm a little ambivalent about him. Chris Spiker, because I, I had to get Who? his name in. Chris Spiker actually celebrating an anniversary today that we're uh, well, we'll congratulate Mrs. Me. Spiker, but not Chris, but not Chris. But Spiker, I believe, saw him at least once over this past summer, if not twice. I unfortunately did not get the chance. But boy, do I love these guys. Top top five band for me. Easy. It's uh, Kurt and Roland, correct? Yes. Kurt yeah. Smith and, and Roland Ball. Olazabal, okay. our old friend Tom Nash once told Your old me, friend? Well, well, really your old friend, but uh, told me years ago that Kurt Smith was somehow related to Davy Boy Smith. I really? don't know if that's true. That's what he told me. Yeah. I may I may have to reach out to the original Blackheart. 
There you uh, go. That's right. good. So number three. Now, Barry, here I told you that there are not just going to be uh, songs that are relatively obscure. There's going to be some songs that were big, massive hits. Barry Rose at number three. When you think of great guitar riffs on a pop song, does it get any like, – you're playing air guitar, okay? Okay. And the opening – chords to Billy Squire and the stroke come on the radio. Do you find yourself playing uh, air guitar? No, I find myself stroking it. That's, <laughs> that's usually – you set me up for that. I don't, know if, I, don't, I don't know if you're talking about music there uh, in particular. Yeah, no, but uh, yeah, Billy Squire too. And I, I was listening to, a, a, I guess, a radio talk show, entertainment show based out of Orlando last week, and they were talking about Billy Squire, and I guess – He's performing in Orlando or doing something, but they went through his entire career. And here was a guy in the early 80s, Jeff. He was right there on the cusp of the explosion of MTV, had the song The Stroke, which for teens, because there was a sexual component to that song, we loved it. That was a big deal, and he was great. And then he had that one video that came out, and that essentially killed his career, apparently. But It was uh, Rock Me Tonight, right? That's the one where he's wearing what looks to be women's exercise clothing, yes, and he's dancing yeah. around like, uh, yeah, uh, it's it's an. And you know the thing that sucks is it's it's a pretty good song. Rock me tonight. It's, it's, a, horrible, it's, it's a horrible video, though. horrible video, and it kill it literally. And he said that, and I'm going, how could a video kill your career? But I got to admit, I really think that the video uh, killed his career, and it's a shame because Billy Squire actually had a lot of talent at that stage. Yeah, so uh, a couple Good things. Uh, this was uh, Billy Squire's first single to chart. It reached number 17 on the Billboard Hot 100. It was a bigger hit on rock radio, reaching number three on the Top Tracks chart. It also reached the UK singles charts, uh, rising to 52. It was named by VH1 as the 59th best hard rock song of all time. Wow. So number two, Barry, a song uh, well-known for featuring a saxophone solo by Junior Walker. But what I did not know is playing the synth on the Foreigner song, Urgent, is a guy named Thomas Dolby. Did you know that? What? I had no idea. Yeah. It gets urgent, urgent. Yeah. Uh, great pop. That was not, Thomas Dolby, yeah. Yeah, he plays the synthesizer on that. And uh, apparently he had uh, written a song uh, that he titled Urges. And basically, uh, I don't know if it was Mick Jones or uh, Lou Graham from Foreigner heard it, and they uh, they asked him if they could use that for this song. And when he they, they recorded the song and he played it back for him, he was like, kind of like, uh, wow, I'm kind of honored that you guys thought enough of the song to uh, to go ahead and use it like that. So yeah, when you next time you listen to Urgent by Foreigner on the synth, it's uh, Thomas Dolby. Science. So. Science. Now, Barry, at number one, oh, by the way, uh, that went all the way up to number four on the Hot 100 Urgent. Number one, Barry, a song again featuring a lead singer who died tragically young of uh, what was believed to be suicide. It might have auto, uh, also been uh, autoerotic asphyxiation. Uh, it's the group In Excess uh, and their song Never Tear Us Apart. It's a great fucking song, Barry. It, it, yeah, yeah, I'm such a big fan of In Excess, and uh, e even their lesser-known songs, even the ones that are super popular, there was a lot of substance, I think, to their music. And uh, I know that they they had a new lead singer 
for uh I want to say they even had a TV show to find yes. the lead singer. Remember that? Yeah. I I'm not really a fan of that kind of stuff, but uh in excess when they were and I was very saddened and apparently he was a great guy, Michael Hutchins. People that knew him came forth and and basically said he was a sad guy that he had had some uh some misfortune and tragedy in his life. He he was the mother of his child, this will circle back to one of our initial comments, was Bob Geldof's ex-wife, I think, or he had stolen Bob Geldof's wife, and I believe her name was Peaches, and she was – they had a baby together, and I want to say the baby's name was like Rainbow Hutchins or something wacky like that. Since that, I believe – She's dead, not the daughter, but the girlfriend. I think that was a drug overdose, I think. Mm. I think the daughter is still alive, but a lot of tragedy surrounding NXS. My opinion, there wasn't a bad song. They didn't put out a single bad song. So also a little trivia, uh, the U2 song, Stuck in a Moment You Can't Get Out Of, was written by Bono about Michael Hutchins after he committed oh. suicide. Yeah, and that's a that's a fucking great song, too, by the way, uh, for all you U2 haters out there. And we have some uh, in our group, let's just say. Uh, but I will say this song reached number seven on the U.S. Uh, Top 100. The song, Barry, I don't know if you knew this, this was the song at Michael Hutchins' funeral. Jeff, just to make a correction here, because uh, as usual, my brain was all scrambled. Peaches Geldof was the daughter of Bob Geldof and his wife, Paula Yates. Peaches Geldof died uh, several years ago, looks to be about eight years ago from a heroin overdose. Paula Yates was the woman who also had a baby with Michael Hutchins. So let's see if she is. Nope, she's dead as well. She died in 2000. I don't know what she she died of a hair. So Bob Geldof loses his wife to Michael Hutchins. The ex-wife dies of a heroin overdose. Their daughter together also dies of a heroin overdose. Wow, that's a hell of a tragedy. Their daughter was. Let's see if she's still alive. She's still alive. She's 26 years old now. Her name, are you, this is, Jeff, this, this'll, this is gonna tie the name of the hotel. Heavenly Hirani Tiger Lily Hutchins Geldof. Happily I think still I, alive. I, I think I remember the whole Tiger Lily thing, uh, being in there because that was a, a Woody Allen movie, I think, uh, Woody Allen or, or Peter Sellers is a movie called What's Up Tiger Lily. And when I saw that, I was wondering whether or not they got that from the movie. So anyway, yeah. just to finish and wrap up this segment, I will say that the song Never Tear Us Apart was played at Michael Hutchins funeral when uh, the band, the members of the band carried his casket uh, out of the uh, the church or wherever they did the service. So it has a, a definite impact and uh, emotion, uh, emotional component with the band. Also, Barry, this song, uh, Rolling Stone, did a listing of the top 500 best songs of all time. This song was at number 282. Uh, so, yeah, so uh, it's not just you and I that recognize the greatness of uh, Michael Hutchinson in excess and the song Never Tear Us Apart. Barry, always a good time to uh, do a couple extra Florida Man or Not stories. For the listeners, they love them. They can't do without them. Barry, are you ready? 
It's Christmas time, Jeff. So I think the big thing is we're recording this. It's the holiday season. Santa's out. I hear sleigh bells ringing and there's nuts. Yeah, it's funny. Right before we started, you were like, let's do this real quick. Now you start going into the holiday season. See, exactly. Uh, Quick question. You're you're the Bob Roof of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network because (laughs) you can't say anything short. You have to be long-winded about everything. Go ahead. Will I take this the way that Bob does and not be offended? I don't know. (laughs) First story. Woman chucks computer at airline agent. Uh, The subtitle is Airport Freakout. Police, uh, I'm sorry, people are really getting edgy at airports during the holiday travel season. A woman ripped out a computer monitor and chucked it at a gate agent, and it's all on video. The crazy scene played out Tuesday uh, at an airport, and it shows a woman going absolutely nuts on American Airlines staff in the middle of a crowded gate, eventually getting her hands on a computer screen and throwing it at the agent. Stunned onlookers gasped in horror as the computer monitor flies through the air, crashing into the airline worker who somehow manages to keep her cool amid the chaos. The woman reportedly launched into her tirade after noticing her kids had walked away from the gate without telling her. She said to have caused about $10,000 in damages, and the gate agent reportedly suffered a bruised shoulder in the incident. According to the report, the woman was, Barry, you're going to be shocked to hear this, ultimately arrested, charged with disorderly conduct, criminal mischief, misdemeanors, an aggravated battery. Hello, that's a felony. Barry Rose, Florida woman or not? Oh, man. There's a lot to unpack here, Barry. There is. She's definitely a Florida woman. The question is, did this take place in Florida? But, my God, that's this is almost the poster child for Florida woman. I'm going to say, yeah, this, this took place Miami in Miami International Woo! Airport. Boy, Barry could spot a Florida woman a mile away. Right. So, yeah. Uh, and, and, let me just say, if you're upset about something at the airport, uh, please don't be throwing equipment at the airport staff. It's going to end in a bad way for you. So, is uh, that a felony too? Uh, well, the aggravated battery is if you you know picked it up and caused some sort of injury to the person. You know, because if something take Jeff, you would be able to set it straight. If something actually happens in air, does it well that you- that becomes federal? That's a federal, but that's a federal felony though, right? Uh, well, I, I don't know if they, uh, you know, if you're talking federal, you're really not looking at a misdemeanor type of charge. Right. You know? That's what I thought. Okay. So, yeah, yeah. So, uh, next story. And, you know, I got to say, Barry, when this was, uh, when this was, when I kind of got a heads up about this story, the first thing I said to the person that sent this to me, I said, this is right up our alley. Barry Rose, I'm going to present you with one of the great headlines in the history of this fine Peabody and Sherman award winning podcast. <clears throat> Barry Rose. Dominatrix demands city commissioners pony up for a sex dungeon. Is that not right up our alley, Barry? That, <laughs> that's us, 100%. Though so nearly an hour into uh, what began as a ho-hum city commission meeting on December 20th, three women wearing head-to-toe dominatrix-style outfits approached commissioners with a demand. Good evening, council people. You may call me mistress, the one in the middle greeted officials. Mistress, sporting a shiny silver suit, futuristic uh, monoblock glasses, and candy apple red lipstick. Oh, you love the candy uh, apple red lipstick, do you, Barry? Yeah, very sexy. Proceeded to explain why she and her, this is the way the article terms it, her daft punk doppelganger cohorts were there (laughs) to propose that the commission set aside a chunk of the nearly $1 million 
allotted in a recently approved yard waste processing plan to fund a sex dungeon in the county. The two women behind her stood silently as she spoke. I propose that you use a quarter of that million to support doms and subs here in the county to build a dungeon created for us by us, the taxpayers and the voting citizens. Very Rose, Florida man or not? Florida woman. Well, yeah, Florida woman or not. Kind of Florida dominatrix. Uh, oh, I'm going to say this seems a little too sophisticated for our beautiful state, Jeff. I'm going to say dominatrix. This took place in California. Barry Rose, I will have you know that the good folks of Broward County, Florida, would be highly insulted <laughs> that you do not think they're sophisticated. Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Wow. Fort Lickerdale, they used to call it. Yes, apparently the doms and the submissives are out in force asking for county or city commission money. Uh, Barry, um, you familiar with the, uh, the dominatrix, uh, type of lifestyle, are you? I'm not. I'd like to be, but I'm not, though. Well, you know, I, I'm just going to say, uh, I recall, uh, oh God, it's been a good five, six years ago. Uh, Mrs. Bowdrin and I had actually gone out to a diner, uh, off of 95. And I want to say, what was it? Uh, Copens Road, somewhere in that neighborhood. We're sitting at the diner and right next to the diner, there's a hotel. Okay. And it's like a residence in something like that. I mean, it's not like, you know, motel six, it's a decent motel and we're sitting there and I'm not even kidding. This group of people walks in and they've got one of them who's got the, uh, like the gimp mask from, uh, what do you call it, from Pulp Fiction and the whole rubber suit and all this kind of stuff. And literally everybody in the diner, including Mrs. Bowdrin and I are like, what the fuck is going on at this diner? And apparently next door, they were having some sort of uh convention for your uh I don't know if it's for your uh, doms and your subs but uh for people that are into uh the whole costume thing you know there are what do they call them the fur uh the fur babies uh, furries yeah the furries they like to dress up like rabbits and screw you know but uh so yeah it was uh, good times the uh, the woman that was dressed up uh in the rubber suit allowed me to take a picture <laughs> So, wow. Do you still have this photo? Uh, you know, I think I have it somewhere, uh, maybe in the uh, cloud, uh, but I will have to post it if I can find it. But that was an absolutely just, uh, like mouth drop. What the fuck experience? Uh, so Barry, tell us your dominatrix uh, related, uh, personal experience. I wish I could. I don't have one. Uh, the closest I think was I was drooling over a woman who was a dominatrix in the movie Eating Raul, if you remember that film. Mm-hmm. But uh, that's about it. I don't have any experience, but I, I'd like an experience. So, well, you know, and then, of course, you famously Olivia Newton-John in Greece uh, dressing up in the leather suit at the end when she was bad Olivia as opposed to uh, good uh, good Olivia at the beginning of the movie. So anyway, uh, what, do you, what do you call uh, Sweet Lou uh, chiming in here? Uh there are times uh, when uh, Waffle House offers more than the smothered and covered, he says, you know. But, smothered and but, covered. Uh, but, uh, yeah. And, and, and Lou also asking, uh, no, Lou, there was no mention of the ball gag, uh, you know, and, and how much you could uh, get for that. So anyway, Florida man or not, Barry, always a good time. Barry, one last Florida man or not story. And when I saw this headline, Barry, I said, oh, this is right up Barry Rose's alley. Are you ready, Barry, for one last I am excited. Last the headline reads, uh-uh, 
Cousin Eddie display <laughs> police response. <laughs> a Cousin Eddie display apparently looked a little too real, and police were called in to check it out. After receiving the call, a dispatcher described the scene to responding officers as, quote, a male standing outside. He's naked. He has a robe covering part of his body. He is exposing himself and has a hose between his legs. Officers arrived at the at the home to find a mannequin in the yard that looked like Cousin Eddie from Nash Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. It was decorated with a robe, a hat, a cigar, and a beer, and was holding what appeared to be an orange hose. Barry Rose, the cops were called on Cousin Eddie, Florida man or not. All right, it shitters full. I love it. Uh, <laughs> I am going to say no, this took place in Illinois. Shepherdsville, Kentucky. Ooh. This was not sent to me by Mike, uh, Mark Hurtwick, by the way. Though, uh, maybe this is a neighbor of Mark's. But, uh, yeah, always good when the cousin Eddie display ends up getting the cops called, Bear. Nothing says Christmas like cousin Eddie and Clark W. Griswold. Barry, about ready to take the uh, old episode into port, if you will. We've talked a little Florida Man. We've talked some awesome 80s songs. And we've done a match where the loser gets power. Yellow, just a sign of a coward, Barry. Are you about ready to take it home? We've laughed. We've Our first episode of the new year. It is. It's Well, this... This isn't our first episode of the new year. This is uh, our last episode of this year. Ah, who the hell keeps track? It's all the same. Really, it's there won't be much of a difference. But uh, yeah, this, this was this has been a lot of fun. And Jeff, twenty twenty three will probably bring some exciting stuff for us on personal levels as well as the breaking kayfabe front as well. Probably right. Well, do you have some exciting news you'd like to tell? No, people? no, I just, I'm just uh, personal, that, personal note. That is something you haven't told us about. Is something imminent happening, Barry? Well, I, I am moving to Florida. Okay, I thought it was going to be something else. Nah, that would have yeah. uh, been real uh, listener-worthy uh, stuff. But on that note, I will remind all of you that Breaking K Fabe is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Gunny, my boy, I really miss you, and I know you're thinking about me because I always think about you. And Happy New Year to you, my man. So, my co-host is Barry Rose. Our producer is Lou Kippelman, who will now take this ship and bring it into port. Watch out for that boat, Lou! Yeah, thank you. You should, <laughs> include, you should include that. That was pretty good. I know. <laughs> <That was> funny. <laughs>